This is the Researchers Code podcast, where I interview the women who are pushing the boundaries of technology in research. On this podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr. Melina Svetskova, a computational social scientist and assistant professor in quantitative methodology at the London School of Economics. Welcome, Melina. First, I want to start off um, and ask you, tell us a bit about yourself and your research. Um, so I'm a sociologist by training and I work in a field um, called computational social science. Um, so I use different kinds of computational methods, including network analysis, uh, online experiments, and computational modeling with agent-based models, uh, as well as large data analysis, uh, you can call it big data or, um, or data science. Uh, and I study social phenomena such as segregation, inequality, cooperation, anything that has to do with large groups of people interacting um, and uh, certain social patterns emerging. Cool, fab. Um, and I was just looking up um, your CV and I noticed you did an undergraduate degree um, in architectural design at MIT. I was just interested to hear from you uh, what made you switch from that to social sciences and then go into computational methods because that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's an interesting question. I get it a lot of times and I still don't have a very straightforward answer. Uh, but I think what happened is that there were a few events that uh, happened in my life that um, made me more interested in social phenomena than um, in um, formal, um, kind of in shape, you can say that that's something that was uh, more dominant in architecture. Uh, so one of these events was the uh, war in Iraq, that was in 2003. Uh, I was in Boston at MIT then, and a lot of my friends around who were very involved with it and it was the first time I felt the need to take a stand in a sense um, and uh, the first time I was politically and socially involved. Uh, another thing that happened actually occurred in London. Um, I did a semester abroad at the Architectural um, Association School of Architecture, uh, not that far away from here, uh, nearby Queen's Bedford Square it's called. Um, and it's, in my opinion, still probably the best school in architecture. Um, and I was a bit taken aback by you know, the emphasis on uh, how buildings look rather than how they make people feel. Uh, and that was another turn that I just realized I'm more interested in people and how they experience uh, the world. Um, and I started reading a book that uh, a lot of architects were interested in back then. It's a philosophical book by Deleuze and Gattari, um, and two, two series of books, uh, uh, the series is Capitalism and Schizophrenia. Uh, and I think that was another very influential aspect where I realized that a lot of people were reading this book, architects were reading this book, looking at it in terms of formalism, but I was much more interested in the state social implication of this. So a lot of these things led me to um, read more about social science uh, and to try to pursue kind of, um, my intellectual interest in this area and my path wasn't very linear. Uh, but what drove me to computational social science in particular was the fact that at MIT all students are required to take um, something related to engineering which often is a computer science course. Uh, and so I had to do that, I was obliged to do that and I would say that that's probably what changed my life 
academically particularly so on. I see. So you did a computational course in your undergrad as yes. a part of the MIT course. Yes. And then because you had that exposure, you thought, OK, it's a little bit you know, easier for me to go into social sciences with a bit of computational aspect. Or uh, I, I would think, you say? Yeah. So it was more that um, I had that. I had to do it. But it changed in a sense the way I looked at doing science. Um, uh, and then independently developed interest in social science. So this, this, these two things kind of come together. Uh, eventually, right? yeah. so uh, originally I, I wasn't, so I kind of gradually went to using um, computational methods. Uh, at the beginning I was more interested in, in theory. Yeah, and actually there are some courses, undergraduate courses, uh, both in the UK and in the States, which do offer that module in computational um, techniques, but mm -hmm. I know in other universities they're still slow to pick up on this. Do you think that all kind of social science and natural science degrees should have a computational element in them or do you think it's not necessary? I think every single degree um, should have computer programming. Uh, I think it's interesting because right now I'm teaching a computer programming course uh, at LSE for master's students and I really hope that in five to ten years time we don't have to even teach the course because every single student would be coming already with sufficient enough computer programming course. I'm really hoping I have a young son. I'm really hoping that by the time he enters university, he would know about computer programming, so this should be taught. Uh, so I think at this point, it's not about the science, social science. It, I think that that's becoming an essential skill, uh, as, as essential as maths and language. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. Yeah, I remember when I did my um, computational course in my undergrad and it was very difficult to start with, yep. but then it gave me that exposure. So I knew what to fall back on if I wanted to do something else or like if I wanted to go into computational techniques, I knew what to expect. So, yeah, no, it was super useful for my education. OK, so I'm going to move on to some more of your research in particular. So your research is in inequality and segregation. So I just was wondering whether you could describe what segregation is and how do you model it, which is a very general question, but I thought yeah. like, we'd start off with that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so segregation um, very broadly is the geographic separation of, of groups of people by certain characteristics, visible characteristics often. Uh, so what comes to mind often is residential segregation, uh, where we have different neighborhoods uh, and people uh, in these neighborhoods are predominantly of, say, one economic, uh, well, one economic, socioeconomic group, such as race or ethnicity or foreign origin or even um, kind of economic status, like income. Right? So you can have uh, an economic um, segregation uh, of poor neighborhoods versus rich neighborhoods, or black neighborhoods versus uh, native population white uh, neighborhoods. Um, so there is a very uh, prominent model um, out there, uh, which was uh, proposed in 1968 uh, by, um, by Schelling, uh, who has a Nobel Prize in economics uh, for other work. Um, but uh, it's a very simple model. It's a great model of what is known as tipping points. This idea, almost you can think of it as a domino effect. This, this idea that you could have individuals following certain rules of behavior, uh, and then this behavior could trigger waves for the population that lead 
to outcomes that none of the individuals intended. Uh, but uh, when you kind of zoom out and look at the, the level of the population, uh, you see such patterns and segregation being one. Uh, right? so, we, so in my work, we started uh, from this model and we tried to test it in a, in a controlled experiment um, and tried to see whether the predictions of the models are correct in this very abstract controlled environment. Yeah, and so what kind of environment did you use? Did you show that empirically it could be applied to social situations? And how did you improve on the original shelling model as well? Yeah, so um, so so this model actually has been studied quite a lot. Um, a lot of people have... Uh, so so the, the model depends on this idea that each of us has a, have a, a preference for homophily, which is something that we know very well in, uh, in social science, homophily being the fact that we want to associate with people that are similar to us, be it in race, be it in interest, be it in um, preferences for music, taste, or whatever it is. Um, and so uh, people have tested that. Uh, do we really have this kind of um, functions, kind of preference functions? Uh, that we, uh, and what's the shape of these functions, right? Is it kind of a threshold function where we are fine with? Uh, say some diversity in our neighborhood, but the moment we become a minority, suddenly it's not okay. Right? So we will have measured that more kind of in relation to social world. Uh, what we did was more to kind of test the model itself, some of the assumptions in the model, some of the implicit assumptions in the model. And so we did an experiment where we designed an app uh, for phones and tablets, um, and uh, it was pretty much simulated. It was a game. It was like a fun game that people could play, and it was pretty much simulating. Uh, what Schelling's model was, where every individual had a, an avatar and they could move it on in the world, um, and uh, what points they got depended on how similar their neighbors were to themselves. Um, and so what we, we did is that we tried to test some of the assumptions in the model, and uh, we found out that there were there was kind of an implicit idea in this model uh, that people would uh, look around and realize that they improve, they cannot improve on their situation, and they'll just stay where they are. And what we saw in the in the experiment is that's not necessarily the case, at least in this in some situations. And the fact that people, even if they they don't know whether their situation would improve. Uh, that they don't, what is known in economics, as satisfies, right? They don't, they don't put up with um, their current situation, but they would even random, do random actions so that they could improve, they take their chances, you can think of that, you can improve their lot. And so what happens is that when you do, uh, when you make this assumption, um, and people indeed behave that way, that some of the predictions of the Shannon model um, do not hold. Um, and in particular, uh, one of the extensions was what happens if people, in addition to preferring similar others, they also prefer, uh, they have a preference for diversity, right? So, okay, sure, I'll be happy with when I'm not a minority, but I would really be happiest when uh, I live in a diverse neighborhood, right? I'd rather be in a diverse neighborhood and not be a minority than to be in a situation where everybody around me is like me. Uh, so it's, it's a homogenous society. Uh, and some of these models have predicted that even if there is preference for diversity, uh, we, you still get segregation because of these kind of tipping points and this asymmetry in preferences. Um, and we show that that's not the case, right? So it's, it's 
in a sense, it's unintuitive to think that if everybody wants diversity, even that won't help with uh, preventing segregation. Uh, and indeed, we show that uh, this in the model, this only shows up when you make these very strict behavioral assumptions that we know from holding in the real world. So what um, social settings did you apply this app in? Like what geographical locations? Because isn't the threshold going to change in different areas of the UK? So, you know, I live in quite a diverse area in Hoxton in London, and that's okay for me. But perhaps someone who lives in a more rural UK area might think a little bit differently. So are there different shifts in that threshold of diversity at all? Yeah, so, so in our case, it was a very abstract situation. So we just wanted to test the model. So we actually did this experiment with high school students in Sweden. Uh, we went to classrooms and we asked them all to play the game. Um, and we wanted to see basically if, if people, we assumed that high school students, they're better with games than uh, older individuals, uh, but they not necessarily think much differently than maybe someone else. Um, uh, someone older or from different background. Um, and so we, we did it, so it was a kind of a very abstract test of the, of the model, right? We haven't applied it really. Uh, but as I mentioned, other researchers have done this and they have looked, for example, of um, differences in preferences between different social groups. So the fact that, uh, well, maybe, um, you know, minorities, maybe they prefer actually, so minority meaning global minorities. Um, in the population, maybe actually prefer to be in, in neighborhoods that are more homogenous, um, with people more like them than, than, say, the global majority. Yeah, great. I mean, that's a very complex question to, to answer. And yeah, what you're doing is really incredible in trying to answer that. Um, I actually saw a recent uh, paper that you wrote um, on the social interactions on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could tell me more about that study. That was very interesting to read about. I am, uh, gladly. So, so this is work I did uh, with uh, collaborators from the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, and we looked at uh, data from Wikipedia that spanned 10 years since the founding of English Wikipedia and on. And we had data on 13 different language editions, just different size and different areas, geographic areas. And we were interested in what happens when one editor reverts, basically undoes uh, the edits by another one. And so that led us to focus on what we call negative interactions. Uh, and of course, an editor could do that because they want to improve the, 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 the quality of the article. Uh, but we hypothesize that this may also have to do with social interactions between individuals because Wikipedia is a community, there are millions of registered contributors, but uh, in the end there is uh, probably a few hundred thousand individuals that are much more uh, regular uh, and probably thousands who are the, kind of the core contributors. And anytime we have such groups of people that interact on a daily basis, we know that uh, social processes occur inadvertently. So that's what we're trying to see. So why were you looking at negative social interactions in particular? What's different about those than, say, social interactions? If you could describe what a social interaction is and then why you're looking at negative. Yeah, so, 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 so social interaction would be any kind of exchange uh, between two um, individuals. Uh, and an exchange could be of information. 
It could be of affection, it could be a physical material exchange, right? like money, for example, or favors. Um, and there, uh, to network, so we have looked at, so the idea is that you have two individuals who have this kind of form of exchange, interaction, but once you have larger groups of people and you observe them over time, you get networks, right? So you can, and you, in fact, as a matter of fact, you have temporal networks, right? So if you just look at one period of time with a lot of individuals interacting with, interacting with whom, you get a much more complex structure than just a diet, just two individuals. But then if you see them over time, then you get a temporal network where you know who interacted with whom when. Um, and the science of uh, the networks, network science basically has been a field that uh, has been going on for at least uh, very strong for at least 50, 60 years. Uh, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, uh, it got uh, picked up uh, by physicists and computer scientists and has made great advances there. Uh, but much of research, especially on social networks, has been done on positive interactions, such as correlations, such as friendship. Uh, advice giving, um, mentorship, um, and so on. Right? And so we wanted to see what happens with negative interactions. And for positive interactions, we know that things such as, we know a lot about things such as reciprocity. So I do something nice to you, you do something nice to me, uh, or other homophilies. just mentioned the fact that uh, the people who are, I tend to interact with tend to be similar to me. So we wanted to test some of these uh, mechanisms uh, and see whether they occur to the same extent in uh, for negative interaction situations where uh, in our context for example i undo what you have contributed and you do the same to me or or you can think of other kinds of negative interactions where we like break our friendship on facebook or um, we quarrel um, um, and we have an argument, we send each other hate notes, whatever it is. Yeah. So in the context of Wikipedia, so these negative social interactions is where someone would perhaps propose a new edit for an, for an article and then another editor will come in and remove it. So that's what the, the proxy for this negative interaction yeah, was. Exactly. So yeah, so, so, so this is the kind of the exact, so that was the proxy, but we also realized that this might not be necessarily negative, right? So we, what we did is we did, uh, we tried to use this um, network analysis techniques to see, to identify to what extent this happened, this kind of you know, observations of, I undo your work, to what extent this happens because um, it, this is what happens on Wikipedia, right? People edit, they want to improve the, the article, and hence uh, these things will happen inadvertently, right? We disagree on content, but the whole point is that we want to improve um, the content of this article. And to what extent this could be because of ongoing fights between editors? Um, yeah, so what kind of findings did you, did you find between editors? Were there any patterns that emerged? Yeah, so um, so what we did is that instead of looking at each revert, we looked at pairs uh, of reverts. And the idea was that if I revert you and you revert me back, this would happen because we work on this article and this, and over time this is bound to happen at some point. Or if this happens a lot, more than some baseline, uh, it could be because we're actually having a negative interaction, right? That we are fighting with each other and this is ongoing and this is more than normal. Um, so we use kind of a suitable baseline to see to what extent um, what we observe in the in the network is abnormal, um, and we did find that there were these back and forths between editors, 
Um, we also we looked for other mechanisms that we didn't find. For example, one thing that is related to some of my other work has to do with uh, what is known as generalized reciprocity. This idea that uh, well, somebody does something bad to me, and maybe it's in, inappropriate for me to pay it back, but I can pay it forward in a sense, right? So I could actually um, make undo somebody else, uh, and this could be because I have kind of this negative affect. I feel bad about it, and now I'm just out there, you know, looking for a victim, um, but it could, yeah, it could also just kind of displace reciprocity. So we looked for something like that, and luckily, I think we didn't find uh, evidence for that, right? So there, this doesn't happen. So you don't have this kind of cascades of of negativity uh, through this community in particular. So I think that's what's good news for humanity. And um, uh, but we did find, for example, another uh, situation where. Uh, if I revert you, uh, then someone else uh, could come and revert me. So in a sense, we have this kind of third part of the defense. Some, someone else would come and intervene. Uh, and interestingly, we found that this is more likely to happen by newcomers, somebody who's less experienced. So this defender is somebody who's less experienced than somebody more authoritative. Um, so also they were just different patterns we, we saw. And of course, the we focus on these negative patterns, but I think the message here, at least for us, was that these don't necessarily mean that uh, they're not necessarily bad for the community, right? In a sense, disagreement uh, is a is a good thing to have, uh, especially when it concerns coming up with new knowledge, right, or agreeing on a reasonable way to present knowledge. Um, so just because we observe that, it doesn't mean that we keep it dysfunctional. Um, it could be actually an important of way through which knowledge is generated and negotiated. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. So one other question, I guess, following that is, could this be applied to other scenarios online? What implications does this have on our online use at all or yeah. any other scenario? Um, yeah. So, so this is something that I've been thinking very hard to how to, to extend these methods to, to try to uh, to apply this uh, to other systems. I mean, potentially, um, this could be not only for positive interactions, it could be for, oh, sorry, for negative interactions, it could be also for positive interactions, right? So this idea, again, for reciprocity, uh, you know, it's something nice to you, you do something nice to me. This could be both positive and, and negative in terms of the kind of implications. So imagine, uh, I mean, I think we have all heard about um, this kind of... Um, raiding each other um, mutually so that we increase. I've heard these anecdotes about, for example, on, uh, on Uber, like drivers asking uh, you to be to raid them positively and then in return they would raid you back, right? And so in a sense that uh, yeah, this system is not supposed to work that way, right? So in a sense this could be kind of perverting the incentives, um, this kind of reciprocity, but in other contexts it could be something, something good, right? Like where this increases the sense of community and increases friendships um, and communication. Yeah. Um, so, so I I've been trying to promise like finding uh, data uh, and especially data where there isn't contamination from other kinds of processes. Uh, but technically, this could be you know this kind of methods, this kind of viewing at social interactions and looking for this kind of social mechanisms occurring could be done on uh, different kinds of um, online systems from anything from um, kind of bulletin boards to um, to social media um, and 
and uh, even, uh, right, as I just mentioned, Uber to kind of sharing economy uh, sites. And I guess um, another another entity that kind of trolls the online world is not just humans, right? It's also bots. Yes. <laughs> so there's another thing that I saw that you wrote about as well, is looking at the interactions of bots online. And I was just wondering if you could just explain a bit more about that and if there's any kind of interference with some of the online things that you've seen in the past or... Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so this, is, this was a fun study, again, at the Oxford Internet Institute, where, again, we looked at Wikipedia, but this time we focused on bots. And we wanted to find out to what extent bots differ in their social interactions to humans. So the idea of a social interaction between bots, I thought it was the, for me as a sociologist, was the most exciting part. Uh, but the idea is that on Wikipedia, we have kind of an almost an ecosystem of bots, or we used to have at least, uh, where there are multiple software scripts. They're designed by editors. Uh, they need to be approved by you know, the organization members. Um, and uh, so they're a bit different than what we know about bots and Twitter, where they're usually hidden, they pretend to be human, they try to trick you. Uh, Wikipedia is a good bot. And they're out there trying to improve the content of Wikipedia. They try to help editors do mainly menial tasks. Uh, but the idea is that we have so many of those, they're not designed to interact with each other, but they work on the same space, so they're bound to, to meet, in a sense. And so again, what we looked at is negative interactions. Again, we looked at reverts, to what extent one bot undoes the contribution of another bot. Uh, and here it was interesting because they're not supposed to do that, right? Like they're supposed to kind of work together to improve Wikipedia. Uh, and so a lot of these are accidental. Nobody designed a bot to interact with another one, the accidental actions. Uh, but we wanted to see to what extent they occur. Um, and what we found is that, indeed, they actually happen. Very few of, um, kind of very, a small percentage of all edits um, done by bots are reverted. It's less than 1%. But when these things happen, when these disagreements happen between two bots, they could continue for years. So there were cases where things, uh, these fights continued for up to three years, for example, back and forth, and nobody found out that you have one bot going around, doing some change, then another one comes and then does basically, you know, follows a different rule and does all of this. Um, so, so, so bots, so our paper was titled uh, Even Good Bots Fight, uh, because um, the idea was that um, there are these unintended interactions by bots. And we should be aware of those when we design. Um, I mean, I think bots will be more and more common. You can think of here of a bot, um, a, kind of a, you know, an autonomous driving vehicle is a bot, right? So uh, the idea is that once we get a lot of these entities out on the road, even if they're not designed to interact, you have to keep in mind that um, they operate in certain environments, they might be following different rules, and you have to keep in mind what happens when they encounter each other. Yeah, that's super interesting. So these bots were probably reverting each other for years and no one spotted them mm. and they've just this edit was switching around, you know, <laughs> in this continuous loop and no one realized. It's interesting that Wikipedia don't really have that system in place to check those, I guess. That's so interesting. Mm. And I imagine that could be really applied to other um editing and curation sites as well as Wikipedia. Um, okay, great. So 
I'm going to wrap up. But before we do that, I'm going to ask, uh, what advice would you give to somebody new to computer science who wants to get into computational sciences and academia? Uh, yeah, okay, so in academia, yes. So, um, I mean, I may, maybe I already mentioned it, but I think to me, what, what was most important for me was to get into computer programming early. So I would highly suggest even undergraduate students, even high school students, to start get started early, because I think it's a kind of a whole new, it's a paradigm shift, right? It's a whole different world, way of looking at problems uh, and solving problems and even looking at uh, finding problems and solving them. Um, and the other thing I would recommend is uh, to have uh, each, um, anybody who wants to go into computational science to have a um, substantive focus too. Um, so for me that was sociology, uh, for others it could be biology uh, or uh, something more narrow, but uh, I think that um, there is a kind of a huge demand now for, because a lot of these computational techniques are have been coming into a lot of sciences, but I, there's definitely more space for that, including the humanities, for example, right? And so it's I think it's very useful to kind of to combine what you think might be incompatible, say your interest in you know 18th century French literature, to combine with um, computational methods, and I think that's where most of the you know, the, the most breakthrough findings are in the next. Um, decades will come from just introducing computational methods to, to old, um, you know, more traditional um, branches of science. You were listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use. 